Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Good morning, everyone. This is Kenard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical (coughs) Instructional Program. Today is June 11, 2011, uh, Sabbath in English, Shabbat in Jewish English, and um, things are getting worse in the world. I'm going to talk about a few things that are coming up here. I must uh, tell you and warn you that uh, things uh, as we know it won't be the way it is uh, for too much longer here. Uh, the article that I'm quoting from is from CNNMoney.com. The heading to the article is America's Own Lost Decade. And this is uh, by Chris Azador, June 8, 2011, at 10.09 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. said, the economy is still struggling, and Americans are in for a long and painful adjustment period. One major reason, their household debt. Many experts say private debt households as well as businesses is an even bigger problem than the government. Growth that will last for six to seven more years, um, producing America's own version of Japan's lost decade. Um, I think it's one of the major headwinds we're fighting against right now. Since filing a real estate bust that hit Japan in the 1990s, the economy fell into a prolonged period of economic stagnation, meaning that uh, failing to increase or get better. That lasted for years and became known as the country's lost decade. And in the U.S., the situation is shaping up to be similarly stubborn. I think we're in for a lot of disappointment, says Carmen Reinhardt, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a leading expert on financial crisis. If historic norms hold, deleveraging isn't pretty and it's not a smooth process. We're already four years into this. I don't think the next six years look great. Uh, said the bubble economy that led to the recession was fueled by American consumers, businesses, and banks taking on too much debt, in other words, charging up credit cards, getting uh, loans that you can't pay back or have a great difficulty paying back. Businesses and banks taking on too much debt, particularly in real estate, during the decade before the crisis. And it says total private sector debt held by consumers and businesses combined peaked at 283% of gross domestic product, which is the total sum of production of a country in, in early 2008, nearly three times the size of the entire economy. So anyway, uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just telling you that uh, this is going to be a, a problem here. They're indicating that we're going to be going through this for six to seven years. And... Realistically, 
I don't see how this country can go through this for six or seven years. Uh, there's an, another uh, news report here from uh, Infowars.com by Kurt Nemo, June 8, 2011, breaking secret Bilderberg agenda leaked by Mole. Mole is a person that is disguised and they relay information to other people. Anyway, according to the AFP journalist and legendary Bilderberg sleuth Jim Tucker's inside sources, the agenda now under review includes a number of critical issues at the top of the elite. The elite, the Bible says, the rich rule over the poor, where the elite is the rich, and they rule over us. Okay, and um, there was a yeah, there was an a, uh, interesting news story that came Friday to my email over the internet. Hillary Clinton wants to lead the World Bank, which is pretty interesting. Uh, they've never had a woman before lead an international. Um, World Bank or international organization that controls finances. And we all know that whoever controls the money controls the world. Well, that's what she wants to do. She wants to head the World Bank, which isn't a surprise to me. Most women want to handle the money anyway. So it doesn't surprise me that she wants to do that. So we need to keep a close eye on that. That's pretty interesting that she has a desire to want to run the World Bank, which is very influential in all countries in terms of, of finances and and uh, money in general. So let's keep an eye on that. But it doesn't surprise me that she, as liberal as she is, is interested in the World Bank, being having the top position there, running the World Bank. But anyway, um, back to the Bilderberg thing here. Um, the elite are concerned that the American Congress may soon turn against the illegal an immoral evasion under humanitarian cover by NATO and the U.S. against the North African dictator Muammar Gaddafi. As columnist Patrick Buchanan noted yesterday, Congress is rising in opposition to bogus wars launched by the executive branch in violation of the Constitution. All right, so I'm not going to read this whole thing. I just want to jot down some significant uh, things that they stated here. Uh, it says, The elite now meeting behind closed doors in Switzerland are pushing for a wider war and incalculable suffering in the Middle East. So they're trying to push toward a war, as Christ predicted in Matthew chapter 24. He stated that kingdom shall rise against kingdom. All this is going to happen before the Great Tribulation. What is the Great Tribulation? What is the signal of the Great Tribulation? The Great Tribulation will begin when the temple is built and when the anti-Messiah will enter the temple uh, himself with a statue of himself, claiming that he is God. That is an abomination to God, and that is called the abomination of desolation. When that happens, that's, that will begin the great tribulation. But Christ stated in Matthew chapter 24, before he got to Matthew 24, verse 15, that there will be a great war before this occurs. And it appears that it will be occurring according to the elite. The elite now meeting behind closed doors in Switzerland are pushing for a wider war and incalculable suffering in the Middle East. The money masters have long profited from war and mass murder. Nathan Ronschild made a financial bet on Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo and while also funding the Duke of Wellington's Pensioner campaign against Napoleon. The House of Rothschild financed the Prussian War, the Crimean War, and the British attempt to seize the Suez Canal from the French and also financed the Mexican War and the Civil War in the United States. In addition to worrying about Congress waking up to the Libyan scam, the global elite is also concerned about a diverse liberty movement that has grown exponentially with the help of an open and free Internet. In response, 
the pocketed pawns in Congress have introduced a raft of bills over the last few months designed to take down the Internet and blunt its impact as a medium for alternative news and information. So uh, what the global elite is trying to do, of course, they don't want people to know about what they're doing. The reason why I'm, I'm even reading this, the the news is not going to cover the Bilderbergs, but Infowars does. Okay, and uh, of course the elite, they don't want anyone knowing what they're doing. And from for a long time before the internet came out, no one knew what they were doing. Okay, but ever since the internet, as prophesied by God through the prophet Daniel, when he said knowledge, when he said go your way, Daniel. But let me read that to you. That prophecy about what's going on right now. Uh, because of the Internet, I'm able to do what I'm doing. Without the Internet, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing, where I can reach potentially 1.9 billion people. But, you know, that would be a miracle for, for me to reach every person with this broadcast. So, um, But, hey, you know, it's possible for God to do, not for me. Uh, Daniel, because that's the Internet. You know, you hear, I was talking to my wife this morning. You hear all these ministers saying, oh, I'm preaching the gospel around the world. Well, you know, the Internet, it only has a reach of 1.9 billion people. If you don't believe me, just type in Internet reach on Google, all right? Only 1.9 billion people right now have access to the Internet. So how can a minister state that they're preaching the gospel around the world? And another thing, most ministers aren't preaching the true gospel anyway. You know, They're not preaching the good news that you must obey God's law to enter God's kingdom. They're not preaching that. They're preaching, well, you don't have to keep the law anymore because Christ did it for you. So don't worry about it. Just love people and you're okay, you know. But that's that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Okay, um, Daniel chapter 12, because the Bible shows you how to love. How can you love if you don't know how? That's what the commandments are for. Anyway, Daniel chapter 12 and I wanted to show, yeah, verse 4 says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So he told Daniel, he prophesied Daniel, there would come a time when knowledge would be so increased. And before the Internet, nobody would know what I mean. Matter of fact, we were in this abominable church. Uh, and I guarantee you, if it wasn't for the Internet, God working through the Internet to get us out of that church, we never would have gotten out of the church. Because the church revealed the true nature of this false prophet and how he runs his church and, and how he built his church. And it was all over the Internet. And then he, of course, brainwashed his uh, followers and tell them not to, not to look at the Internet. Well, I wonder why. Well, the reason why is because it reveals the truth about him. That's why. So, of course, he doesn't want anybody to know about it. And then he brainwashed adults tell them that to use their own PCs in their own home. They can do what they want to do. God doesn't come down and tell me, Kenar, don't look at this and don't look at that. You know, he lets me do what I want, and he hopes that I make the right decisions when I surf the Internet. But unfortunately, adults, as well as children and teenagers, can't control themselves, and they and they look at wrong things on the Internet, and that's why companies, as I was explaining to my son this week, that's why companies even have Internet filters, because they know adults, they, quite a few of them don't know how to control themselves, and they look at stupid stuff that they had no business looking at while they're working. They shouldn't be looking at it anyway. But definitely, while they're working, they shouldn't be looking at pornography or, or some other stupid stuff while they're trying to get work done. Why? Because that only detracts from their responsibilities, and it hurts the company. If, if, 
if several employees or even one employee is not doing their job, that's less money that the company is not going to make because productivity is going to go down. You're only productive when you're doing productive things. Looking at porno and looking at uh, other entertainment while you are working is not being productive. So anyway, before I get off on a tangent with that, the point of the matter is knowledge shall increase. That's a prophecy that the Internet would be invented, and the Internet, what is it? It's an information bank. You can find anything, any knowledge, and I mean anything, that you have in your mind, you can type on the Google search engine, and it comes up in front of your face. Very powerful. And the elite, of course, wants to shut that down because they don't want you finding out anything about them. If you just type in the elite conspiracy, you'll have all kinds of stuff on Google about the elite. They don't like that. So what they're trying to do is shut that down. But it's not going to be shut down until God is good and ready for it to be shut down. So the elite can do all they want, but God is the elite. That's the true elite. Okay. What is it, Sheree? I did explain to the elite, but I don't know if my wife was listening. I said earlier, I said earlier that the rich rule over the poor, and I said that's what the elite was. So, so if you would have heard me, you would have known that I talked about the elite already. Okay, so, so the elite uh, again is the rich. Okay, the elite, but the true elite, folks, is God the Father. Nothing goes on without His approval, and the elite don't understand that, but they will one day. So. That's it with that article, and we need to look for a Middle Eastern war that not only this article has revealed, but more importantly, God has revealed that there's going to be another war. And that war will originate from the Middle East, uh, and it's already happening right now, but there's already been a war for years between Jews and Arabs constantly. They're, they're constantly firing rockets that, you know, of course, the media, and then, of course, if Israel fired a rocket at them, it's all over the world in two seconds, you know. But that, that that's just the way it is, how people persecute the Jews and, and put them down and, and so forth. And and there's a real reason why they do that, folks. Uh, Jesus is a Jew, and, of course, the devil hates Jesus. So, of course, he's going to persecute the people that he came from. That only makes sense. So, anyway, those are the articles here. And as I've told many of you, on this program, you know, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I, I'm, I'm going through stuff, and I'm sure you are too. Most middle class Americans are going through a lot right now. Only the rich, even though their their finances are going down the drain, somewhat they still have a lot of reserves. So they're not suffering like like me or some other average Joe. Uh, what I mean by average, uh, economically, socioeconomically. So we need to cut back. We we don't we we only need to spend money in two areas for emergency savings and money to increase your income. Um, I suggest many of you, if you haven't considered it, you should try to think about running your own business. Um, Companies today, the average tenure on a job is only three and a half years. And a lot of jobs today that are available, which the Obama administration are telling you, are service sector jobs. Uh, Sit down, customer service jobs that only pay you 10, 12, 11, 12, 13 bucks an hour. Uh, it's, It's very difficult to make a living on that. Uh, when you have kids, uh, if you're single, you could do it if you're out of debt. Also, you should continuously try to educate yourself. Educate yourself in practical subjects uh, so that you can apply it and increase your skills so you can make yourself much more attractive in the workforce. Um, only invest money in needs right now, food, clothes, shelter. Uh, if you have a business, 
make sure that you've gone over your homework and make sure that whatever you're going to invest in, that has a good probability of working. Take a calculated risk. Don't take an uncalculated an uncalculated risk. It's saying, hey, uh, this man said this is work I do. No, you you got to look into it and see if other people have have uh, done their program and succeeded in it. And if you have enough proof, then, yeah, it's worth a calculated risk to try it yourself. But you shouldn't invest in something where it's going to hurt you or your family to the point of where you're going to be out in the street. Don't do that either. But smart investments is saving money for emergency situations, getting emergency food right now uh, to prepare for the chaos that's going to occur here in the next few years with people rushing to the grocery store, getting items, with grocery store items being expensive. Uh, it's just going to be uh, very difficult. What I suggest each and every one of you do is go to eFoods Direct and start to stack up on emergency food as soon as possible. Don't wait. Don't, don't be reactive. Be proactive. Always be proactive in everything that you do. God is proactive. He wants us to be proactive. Don't wait for something to happen and then do something. Continue to always improve yourself. Continue to look for a job. I do that. I have to do that uh, to look for not a job but clients because I lose clients. And what I've done consistently is always look for other things. And you have to continue to do that because if you don't, you know, things... It's like the Bible states and, and reveals in Ecclesiastes that time and chance happens to all. That means even the righteous. And bad things can happen. Bad things happen to Jesus. Bad things happen to Paul. Bad things happen to all the apostles, basically. And then the Bible does reveal that um, through much tribulation you enter the kingdom of God. So if we know that, we have to proactively prepare to deal with that. So don't wait for something to happen. Prepare for something to happen because God said it would. Okay? That's my advice. And I think I'm old enough and mature enough at 45 to give you some advice. Okay. Uh, let's go over the Torah readings for this week. Pretty interesting. The title of the Bible study is The Menorah and the Bread from Heaven. So let's go over Numbers, Chapter 8. These are some interesting. Uh, and I hope you guys pay attention. You're going to learn a lot today about how God expects us to act based on the behavior of the Israelites here, the um, ancient Israelites. Numbers, chapter 8, verse 1. So first we're going to talk about the seven lamps, the menorah. Numbers 8, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Aaron, speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up his lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses, and this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall go to them to cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification upon them, and let them go with a razor over their, all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. And let them take a bull from the herd and his grain offering of the fine flour mixed with oil. And you shall take another bull from the herd for the sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on, on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel. Let me just mention something about the your own business. Um, I hope you didn't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to quit your job. 
and start a business unless you can afford to do that and you have enough savings reserve. Most people, what they do, they start a business part-time while they're working for someone. I just want to clarify that. Verse 10. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. So the Levites do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and you shall make shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you, and you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that the Levites shall go in to service at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. So instead of God taking the firstborn, he has taken the Levites as substitute for that. Okay? Verse 17, For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the, on, that, on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself, and I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel, to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting, and to make atonement for the people of Israel, that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. So the Levites serve an important purpose. Verse 20, Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation and the people of Israel to the Levites. The people of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do the duty in the service of the tent of meeting. So it appears that at age 25 they were qualified to do the service of the Lord. Verse 25, and from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. Now, this is interesting. Levites at age 50 don't serve no more. That's pretty interesting. They minister to do their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. So they, they would always minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they will do no service, the other service. Thus shall you do to the Levites, well, they're going to still work, you read, they're just not going to do a certain other function, okay? They're still going to minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. All right, chapter 9, verse 1. There's no retirement in the Bible. Uh, I, I don't see that. I mean, Moses was, what, 120 years old, and he was still serving. So, And God has not retired, and he's the ancient of days. So uh, you, no one is going to ever get away from work, folks. We're going to always be working. Uh, eternally, uh, He commands us to work six days a week, and that commandment is forever. So um, I know a lot of you listening to me don't like your job. I don't blame you. But uh, there's ways around that even now in this life. Get into a profession. Uh, go to my website and click. Uh, what do I have on, on my website in regards to, uh, yeah, job training. I have job training on that tab. If you click on that, go to this one website, they have various different correspondence courses. If you want to be an auto mechanic, they have a course on how to become an auto mechanic. If you want to be a plumber, if you want to 
do other things that most of these colleges don't teach today, uh, practical skills that you can make money. Plumbers make money, folks. Auto mechanics make money. They get dirty, but they make money. Okay, uh, seek professions where you if you want to be a computer programmer, computer programmers make money. Seek a profession where you're going to make money. If you want to be a writer, uh, a copywriter, they make money too. Designing sales letters and, and so forth. Pursue that. College degrees are nice, but believe me, from experience, a college degree does not guarantee you're going to make a lot of money. You have to have practical knowledge, practical education to be able to be successful financially. So anyway, um, Numbers chapter 9, starting in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at this appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight, between the two evenings, that's what that means, you shall keep it as it is appointed time according to all the statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight between the evenings in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. So the people of Israel did keep the Passover uh, again after they kept it in, in, in Egypt. If people are wondering about that. Verse 6, And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so they could not keep the Passover on that day, and they came before Moses and Aaron on that day in the month. And those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at his appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And this is, I want you to notice this, folks. I mean, God is a creator, and he has rules and regulations, and Moses knows that. And so Moses is not going to take upon himself to make the decision. He's not sure. So he's going to seek God's wisdom. Now, unfortunately today, we can't do that. But we have the words written down here. So if we are in doubt about anything, whether something's right or wrong, what should we should do is pray to God to give us the understanding, and then we go into the Scriptures. If we can't find it in the Scriptures, then we ought to seek someone like myself or someone else who is proven to understand the Torah or the doctrines of God. And if I, don't, if I can't find an answer, I'll go to someone who I know does. Okay? So, or I'll do the best I can to find the answer. But I'm hoping that you see that, just like the example in Acts uh, chapter, I think it's chapter 8 or 9, uh, when the evangelist Philip helped the eunuch understand Isaiah 53. Um, God has always used men to help other men and women understand the Scripture. Sometimes he's used women. But in most cases, he's used men to help them understand what the Bible says. And I get some people saying, well, hey, I don't need no, I don't need no man, I don't need no... Yes, you do. <laughs> God has raised a church, an assembly, to teach you the words of God. So uh, it is possible, to, but you're going to be taught through him. And that, that case doesn't happen too often when God is totally individually, without any man at all being involved in your life, or woman, teach you the words. Okay, so I just wanted to... Make that clear here. Numbers chapter 9, verse 9. Actually, verse 8. And Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Command. God does command us to do things, folks. 
Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people here. This is a command here. Saying, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, you know, God, when you command somebody, you don't ask somebody. I mean, you command them, and that's what he did here. He said, speak to the people. He didn't ask Moses nothing. He just told him what he expects, and that's what a boss does. They tell you what they expect of you, your responsibilities. In uh, the second month on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of his bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from the people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at his appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns with you or is among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to his rules, so shall he do. You shall have one statue, and this is very important scripture here in light of what the Jews teach um, incorrectly. Uh, you shall have one statue, both for the soldier and for the native. So God's law is for everybody. And, of course, they, with their, through their oral tradition, misinterpret this to mean this, the stranger is talking about someone who is already converted. Well, show me in the Bible where it says that, folks. Okay, It says you shall have one statue, both for the soldier and for the native. Okay? Uh, God wants to... He wants to uh, have everyone obey his law. And Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, states that. Let's turn to that. Isaiah chapter 66. All these scriptures are popping in my head because I I have studied the Bible. I mean, literally, I have studied the Bible for years and years and years. And if you keep on reading something over and over again, you're going to remember those scriptures. Isaiah 66. Starting at verse 22. And this is a very significant one for you to remember. To know where it's at. Right, but that promise is, 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 you have to do something. You have to study the Word of God. You can't just all of a sudden out of the blue expect the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God, uh, to bring to remembrance of something you're not really interested in. So, so you have to study, okay? Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, so this is literally a prophecy, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Verse 23, from one new moon to new moon, which, of course, includes the holy day observances, because you can't observe it without understanding the new moon. And from Shabbat to Shabbat, or Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And this context is talking about all flesh, meaning human beings. I don't think animals are going to come to worship God, okay? So it's obviously talking about human beings. Even the rabbis admit that the all flesh is talking about mankind, okay? But this is what's going to happen to people who don't do it. Verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. In other words, don't want to obey. For their worms shall not die, not them, but the worm that naturally comes on anybody, uh, anybody. He's talking about the, the worms that form. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The worms shall not die, meaning that <clears throat> worms will feast off their flesh, and it's going to be so many of them 
obviously there's going to be quite a few bodies. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me drink some water. <clears throat> so that one scripture tells you that God intends for everyone to keep the Torah, not just the Jews. And there's other scriptures I can quote too, but that's a basic comment. If you don't understand that scripture, I don't know if you're going to understand the other ones. So anyways, go back to Numbers. That's pretty clear to me. Even the child can understand that one. Numbers. Chapter 9. Verse 15. On that, on that, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire into morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. According to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when a cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. So, again, it's showing that the people, at this time anyway, was obeying Moses. And when they were obeying Moses, they were obeying God, because God used Moses to uh, dictate his commands. All right, chapter 10 of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. The word congregation in the original Hebrew means assembly. That word church and the renewed covenant uh, scriptures or what is commonly known as the New Testament, it means assembly, congregation. The concept of a church originated with the people of Israel. And a church, what that means is an assembly. It's an assembly of people worshiping. Verse 3, And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps are, that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are set out. But when an assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statue throughout your generations. This is another law that I don't think is followed at all today. <laughs> the trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statue throughout your generations. And when you go to war, so the trumpet, when you look at the trumpet in the book of Revelation, it's a time of war, folks. It's associated with a time of war. All right? And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. So this is a, uh, a scripture that, that's very significant here because it's telling you that Torah teachers, their responsibility is to warn the people, to warn the people of war. And I try to do that each and every week on this program. I try to tell you what, how things are going in the world. 
I blow symbolically a trumpet to try to to warn people and tell people that time is up almost, folks. I mean, we're we're living in the time that Jesus said. I know many people have said this in the past, but when you look at all the facts, when you look at where we're at right now, when you look at the fact that prior to World War II, we didn't have a nuclear bomb. Ever since 1945, we we have a nuclear bomb, and we are we can fulfill that scripture that Christ stated in Matthew 24, verse 21. If he did not come, no flesh would be saved alive. Prior to 1945, we did not have that capability. That's the reason why I can confidently say that we are living in the generation that he referred to that would not pass away until he came. Now, I can't tell you what year he's going to come, but I can certainly tell you we are living in that generation based on common sense. The fact that we do have the capability of destroying all of mankind on this earth as he prophesied. Right, the Great War, of course, is going to come. Right. Exactly. So the war is going to come. Yeah, of course, the war is going to come. That's why he has to come, Sheree, to stop the war. Okay. Right, because if he didn't come, no flesh would be saved. Right. So you're making a good point there. But anyway, Numbers, chapter ten. Where are we at here? For I got off track. Uh, verse 8, And the sons of Aaron the priest shall blow the trumpets. The trumpet shall be to you a perpetual statute throughout your generation. So Torah teachers, priests and Levites, whatever, we should always be warning people. Okay? Uh, the trumpet shall be to you. Okay, I already read that. Verse 9, And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, oppresses you. And that's all that war is, folks, is one person trying to oppress someone else. Okay? Then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpet that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. So God is going to always be with you in all your battles, your spiritual battles as well as your physical battles, if you listen to the sound of the trumpet. If you don't listen, he's not going to be with you. And you shall sound an alarm with the trumpet that you may be remembered before the Lord your God. See, by sounding the trumpet, he's going to remember you. And you shall be saved from your enemies on the day of your gladness also and at your appointed feasts. So it's not just for warning, it's also for celebration, the trumpets. Okay? But you can tell in the context of the book of Revelation, it ain't talking about no celebration, you know. This <laughs> is the context of war, the trumpets. Verse 10, on the day of your gladness also and at your appointed feasts and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God, I am the Lord your God. In the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the clouds lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So God was commanding by Moses. This is the way he's done it most of the time throughout history. He has commanded by a human being, and this human being was Moses in this case. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies, and over their company was Nashan, the son of Ammonadah, and over the company over the tribe of Issachar, and was Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulon was Eliab, the son of Helon. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merai, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out their companies, and over the company uh, was Eliab, Elazar, the son of Shediar, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Elisa, the son of Duel, 
and it continues to go on and on and on here. And then the Korathites set out carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim, or Ephraim, set out by their companies, and over their company was Elisha, Mahad, the son of Amahat. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Podajah. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abaddon, the son of Gideon. And the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as a rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies. Over the company was Azir, the son of Amashadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Orkran. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ariah, the son of Enon. And, and this was the order to march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Mediite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will not depart to my own land and to my own kindred. And he said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do, and if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will be, the same will we do to you. Verse 33, so they set out, so that was good enough for him to go, obviously. So verse 33, so they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them, and the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of Israel. So God was very close with the children of Israel at this time. Numbers chapter 11, and here we go with the complaining again. Verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So again, folks, we've we got to stop complaining to God about things. All right? Unfortunately, the children of Israel, even the modern children of Israel today, the, the ones in the United States, Britain, Canada, Northwestern Europe, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, we have a serious problem. We like to complain to God about almost everything. That's just the way we are. We're just never satisfied with nothing. And, and God calls us Jezreel, we wax fat, most of us are overweight, and, and we still complain. we got fat bellies and we complain to God about this and that and everything else. And God is, is tired of that. Uh, for proof that we are of the children of Israel, I've said this many times, go to Britam.org, www.bazinboy, R-I-T-A-M, as in mother, .org, for all the proof you need, secular and religious. But anyway, um, the Jews are not just Israel, folks. Uh, there were ten tribes, not just one. The Jews are part of the tribe of Judah. There's other tribes. But anyway, in verse 2, then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to God, and the fire died down. So, the, And then the Jews said, well, we don't believe in inter any intercessor for God. Well, that's what Moses was. They're blind. <laughs> Moses interceded for the people. They had to talk to him. And then, on top of this, what did God, remember in Exodus, they said, don't let God speak to us. And so God used Moses to speak to them. And then you have Jews today. There's a doctor of Jewish studies. I'm not going to give his name. I'm going to gossip, okay? He stated that we don't, Jews don't believe that there's an intermediary. 
Well, Moses was the intermediary for the Jewish, uh, for not the Jews, but for the children of Israel, including the Jewish people. So, what's going on here? I mean, this is in this situation here. Then the people cried out to Moses. They didn't pray to God themselves. They cried out to Moses because they knew Moses was God's representative on the earth at that time. Okay, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. How come the people didn't pray to the Lord themselves if he wasn't an intermediary? So anyway, verse 3, So the name of that place was called Teborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Of course, because of their tradition that goes against Torah, they believe that God doesn't want an intermediary. And that can be proven all throughout the Tanakh that he does. But anyway, this is one of the proofs. Moses, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Rabble uh, meaning complaining, okay? Uh, and, the, and the people of Israel also wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Here we go. And then this is a prophecy because today we love our pork in this country. We love to eat meat. And we lust too much for meat. Matter of fact, our diet consists of too much meat. That's why we all got fat bellies. We eat too much meat, too much of it, okay? In particular, red meat. That's, that's what we eat too much of. And this is what they lusted for. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Of course, they're not desiring the true meat that we need to eat, the Bible, the words of God. They wanted meat to eat, okay? So uh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt, so they wanted fish too, uh, and that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now... But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance, like that of bedillum. The people went out and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in the mortars and bought it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping through the, their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. So this tells you that God was extremely angry for to say that his anger blazed hotly. This, is, this was not a calm anger. This was a heated anger, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you laid a burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land? And they had nurses back then, obviously. Um, to the land that you swore to give their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people or food? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you would treat me like this, kill me at once. And I felt like that, too, at times. You know, I've, I've been burdened so much, I would ask him to kill me, you know. And Moses asked him to kill him, okay? And I can understand why. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. And then, verse 16, God said, then the Lord said to Moses. And he listened to him. He knew he was right. He knew that Moses could not handle this on his own. And God, you know, you can talk to God like this, folks. Don't be afraid to talk to him like this. Reason with him. That's what Moses did. And look, did God curse him and burn him up for that? No. He responded. He knew Moses was right, that this was too much of a burden for him. 
So Numbers 11, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is in you, or on you rather, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So he had compassion for Moses. He understood. Verse 18, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, you will give, Who will give us to, to meat? Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. And see, God didn't like that, you know, better in Egypt thing, you know. So that's what he got angry about. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat all right. And I'm just paraphrasing it, you know. And you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who was among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? God didn't want to hear that crap. You know, why did we come out of Egypt? How dare they say that to God? Why did we come out of Egypt? The reason why they came out of Egypt because they were enslaved and were working every day, including the seventh day, and they and they, and they were crying out to the Lord. That's why. And for them to say that, they had lost their minds. Okay? Verse 21. But Moses said, The people among whom I am, the, uh, the people among whom I am numbered, 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Now, see, Moses got, <laughs> got angry here, you know. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So I know he wasn't pleased with Moses doubting his ability to do anything he wants. So Moses wasn't perfect either. He had his doubts about things as well. Verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. That was his responsibility, to tell the people the words of the Lord. And that's the responsibility that I have. Believe me, I didn't raise my hand up and say, God, I want to do this. He, he, you know, when I asked God to kill me, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, I guess. Because uh, I told him, I asked him to kill me if he wasn't, didn't reveal himself to me. And he did. And, uh, you know, I enjoy what I do. What I don't enjoy is people not believing God's words. That hurts me so much. When I know that I'm preaching the truth and I'm just doing it out of the Bible and people still don't believe what God says, that's what really hurts me. That's what really hurts me. That's what makes this job a burden to me. Anyway, verse 24. And his words are so plain if you just believe them. If you believe them. Just believe them. Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now the two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. Interesting names, isn't it? And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, that young man was Joshua, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses stopped him. I don't know if the young man was Joshua, but we know this is Joshua here. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses stopped him. But, uh, and then Lord means master. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets or teachers? 
of the, of the, of the law, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so Moses, he, he wasn't, you know, the kind of leader Moses, he didn't want to be top-notch person and rule over everybody like a dictator. He didn't have that type of attitude that a lot of ministers have today. And a lot of these organizations, they want to be top dog, cute on the, uh, on the pulpit and rule over people and tell them how to run their life. He he wasn't like, he was very, he was the most humble person on the earth. That's what God said. And this is an example of it. He was humble. He said, I wish that God would put his spirit on everybody. I wish that God would make everyone prophets, you know. That's very humbling I mean, to, to be that way. And Moses and the elders of, of Israel returned to the camp. Now, verse 31, let's get back to punishment here. Verse 31, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. These folks were so desperate for food. And what did God say? These people rose up all that day, all the day, and all night. They didn't even get any sleep. And all the next day. <coughs> so they, for 36 hours, for 36 hours they were gathering food and didn't sleep. That's how desperate they lusted for food. That's sad, folks. That's a serious mental problem. Those who gathered least among ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves or all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled, as you can imagine, against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. So it is a sin, folks, to be a glutton. A glutton is somebody that just wants to eat, 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 overeat, and put too much emphasis on food. That is a sin if you focus on food too much, like it's you know, the most important thing in your life, and it's not. Therefore, the name of the place was called Kabra Hatava, and it said he, uh, oh, wait a minute, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague, so he killed people. Therefore, the name of the place was called Kabra Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving, or lusting for food. There's nothing wrong to lust for food, but they overdid it, and he didn't like that. From Kibra Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazara. And they remained at Hazarah. And the reason why he named the place that is because he said, because there they bear the people who had the craving. So that's that's the name, and that place still exists today. Okay. So that's a lesson that we must learn there. We shouldn't be complaining to God about things like that. So here's another example of disobedience here in Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses. So they had an issue with him, with the Cushite woman, okay, which was uh, many, many Jew, Jewish uh, interpreters uh, say that that's support. But anyway, Moses married a black man. Black, not a black man, black woman. <laughs> a black woman he married, okay. Number 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. They repeated that because, you know, they, they felt that that was a problem, okay. Now, verse 2, and they said, Has the Lord indeed, and also they were doubting or not respecting Moses' authority. He was the top authority of Israel there, and they didn't like that. 
So they had two problems with him: that he married a a woman out that that's, that wasn't an Israelite, okay, and also uh, that um, they did not respect his authority. Verse 2, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken to us also? And the Lord heard it. So he heard it. Verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. So I just you know, told you that God said that he was the most humble man on the earth at this time. And this verse confirms it. Verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. Okay, so that's a direct order. He didn't ask them nothing. He commanded them to come to the tent of the meeting. Okay? And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. That word hear in the original Hebrew means understand my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. That's the, what it is with most prophets. But Moses was different. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So he actually saw the word of God, Yeshua, in his preexistent form. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So God is pretty angry here, and I'm telling you, don't want to tell my son this almost all the time. You don't want to get God angry at you, because this is what happens. Verse 9, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. And verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. So this is interesting, because <laughs> Yard Davidi really put a twist on this that is accurate. Now, anyone knows, that study history that a Kushite woman is black. Okay? When you become a leper, you become white as snow. So God is he's making a point here. Okay? So if you into this white thing, I'm going to make you white as snow. And that's what he did with Miriam. It says she was leprous like snow. You know what snow looks like, right? It's very white. Okay? And they were accusing Moses of marrying a black woman. Obviously, God didn't think that was a problem as long as the black woman kept Torah. Obviously, she kept Torah. Zipporah kept Torah. Okay? So, God didn't appreciate that. So, verse 10, when the cloud removed from the other tent, Miriam was leopardous like snow. So, you know, a Caucasian, you know most of them aren't white as snow. But, of course, when you become a leper, that's what happens to you. You become white as snow. Alright? And that's what happened to her. But it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that you know Kushites, and the Kushite woman was very, Sheree, I'm preaching and I'm teaching, okay? And if you don't like what I'm saying, you can just walk out, okay? I'm preaching the truth. If you don't like it, go ahead, all right? I, I, I just appreciate it if you just let me do what God has commanded me to do, to preach, without any interruptions. If you have something in support of what I'm saying, talk about that. Well, uh, that, this is the truth. A Kushite woman is black. Okay? She was turned white as snow. They had the issue, not me, with her being a black woman. And I'm just preaching the truth out of the scriptures about it. If you have a problem with that, I can't help you. Okay? All right, so verse 10. 
when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam, when somebody gets offended, then go talk, listen to somebody else. I'm not going to give you what you want to hear. I'm going to preach the truth of the Bible and what it says. And if you have a problem with God, what he says, then you go elsewhere. Get, go, go talk to somebody or listen to a minister who wants to give you what you want to hear, and it's not the truth, okay? Go, go listen to Bishop Jake or someone else, okay, that believes that the law has been nailed to the cross, all right? All right, anyway, um, getting back here. Verse 11, And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O Lord, or God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had not spit in her face, she should not... But if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? And I you know, I think that was a law too for that to occur. It said this punishment is justified by comparison with family because when a child must be disciplined for shaming his father. Uh and then Deuteronomy twenty five, you want to turn to that, Deuteronomy twenty five verse nine, about the spitting in the face thing. Deuteronomy twenty five verse nine. Verse 9. Um, oh, yeah, here we go. Verse 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Deuteronomy 25, verse 7. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of, of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then the brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elder and, and pull his sandal off his feet and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of the house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So that's where that law comes in, and that's what he's referring to, it looks like here. He says, If her father had put had but spit in her face, she, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she shall be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So that situation again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, we all are of one race. There's different types of human races. And God is not concerned whether you marry a black woman, white woman, or, you know, husbands or men marry or a woman marry someone of a different type. He's concerned about whether or not you are keeping Torah. And it was wrong for Aram and Miriam to be concerned that he married a Cushite woman. All right? And they and they spoke against Moses because of that. And then he changed her in, into a leper, white as snow, to make a point. That he didn't like her complaining about that. And also didn't like her doubting Moses' authority being the, the top authority of Israel. All right? So, and if that offends you, I can't help you. I'm just preaching the truth, telling you out of the Bible. Uh, Zechariah chapter 2. I can't worry about if I offend somebody. Christ offended many people speaking the truth. It's all throughout the Gospels. They got angry at him. They wanted to stone him many times. <laughs> you know, this is not a popularity contest. I'm not here to make you feel good other than 
I hope you you feel good when I preach God's words, the truth to you. That makes you feel good. But if you get angry and upset because I'm preaching God's words, then God says you're not of him. Zechariah. Chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Is that chapter 14? Let me see. Okay, and it's chapter 13 in uh, the English translations here. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And then starting in uh, verse 3, I mean chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And, and this is the uh, Haftarah section of the prophet section of the uh, Torah reading. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And this is prophetic because this is what the devil does. I mean, he does, he's been doing this for years. He's always ready to falsely accuse you of something. Or to rightfully accuse you of something. But he definitely has a bunch of lies in, in a lot of his accusations. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. We don't rebuke him. The Lord rebukes the devil. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this the brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So this was a high priest with filthy garments. And the angel said to, to, to those who were standing before him, remove, thy filthy, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Now, Joshua the high priest, after he got cleansed, was the type of the Messiah. Uh, Jesus' name in, in, in Hebrew English is Joshua. Okay? And I know I was talking to one, this one Jew, and I said, the, the, the name of the Messiah is not even revealed. Yes, it is. It's, it's revealed in Zechariah to be Joshua, which transliterated is Jesus. Matter of fact, in the Septuagint version of the Bible, it has Joshua translated Jesus in the entire book of Zechariah. So anyway, and for those who don't know what the uh, Septuagint version is, it's the first official uh, translation from the original Hebrew manuscript into another language. That language happened to be Greek. And this happened back in the year 250 B.C. B as in boy, C as in cat. Anyway, verse 8, And here now, O Joshua, the high priest, and you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that's talking about when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So I will remove the iniquity in a single day is referring to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 4. 
starting in verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold and a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might nor by my power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range from the whole earth, referring to seven angels. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes, which the golden oil is poured out? He said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So uh, this is uh, referring also to uh, the witnesses, and I, I think I'm going to get into that here shortly. Um, it says right here in verse 14 of this uh, interpretation here, it says the two olive trees are the two anointed ones. Uh, Yishar indicates new oil, one of the marks of the fertility that flows into God's blessing. These trees are thus characterized by endless fertility, which means unlimited amounts of oil for the lampstand, and they stand by the Lord of the whole earth as members of the heavenly court. Most interpreters think these two represent Zerubbabel um, and Joshua. They stand in the Lord's presence and receive his favor and protection. Other possibilities are that they represent Haggai and Zechariah, who as prophets had interest into the heavenly deliberations, or the angels who act as God's agents in supplying unlimited divine assistance to the restored temple. We're going to see that it's representing... Um, there's strong indications that it's representing two assemblies. So we're going to see that here. And, of course, any assembly has a leader that leads it, okay, or leaders. All right, so we're going to look at the renewed covenant scriptures here in light of the menorah and the bread from heaven. And hopefully within an amazing 19 minutes, I don't have too much time. I have a lot to cover here, but I'm going to try to summarize this here. Okay, Revelation chapter 1. First of all, I want to explain... Uh, what the menorah is representing here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on, on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like were white, like white wool, like snow. Many people misinterpret and say, oh, Jesus' hair was wool. No, it's saying the hairs of his hair were white, like white wool. It didn't say that his hair was wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So, verse 17, that's what we're going to look like um, 
in our spiritual glory, glorified bodies. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. Stands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven assemblies or churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then when it talks about the two witnesses here, Revelation chapter 11, in verse 4, it states that these are the two olive trees. We already know what the two olive trees are, the two that are standing before the Lord. And the two lampstands, we already know what lampstands are. They're assemblies that stand before the Lord of the earth. So that tells you who the two witnesses are. Everybody's trying to figure out who they are. And the Bible's already told us who they are. They're two assemblies and two individuals. Does that make sense? Hello? Does that make sense? According to the scriptures, that's what it's indicated. All right? Of course, when you have two assemblies, uh, you have leaders over the assemblies. And, of course, it talks about the rest of it, but I just wanted to reveal that. That's what the menorah pictures, the assembly of God. That's what it pictures. And also Yeshua is in the midst of the menorah as the light. Okay. Now, something that I, I realized today studying this, uh, jo uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. Hopefully I can get to this bread part too, but I might have to talk about that next week. John chapter 8, the bread from heaven. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John chapter 1. Turn to John chapter 1. What is this light? That's what we need to ask ourselves here. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? Uh, verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, we're going to get into how the light enlightens everyone here in a minute. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, and they still don't today. The majority of the world don't know him today. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. The majority of the Jews did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Uh, you guys hearing that? Uh, something I can do about that. But anyway, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, Anyway, what is this light? Light, the light is Yeshua, but um, in John chapter nine, in John chapter nine, starting in verse five, it says, "As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." Now he's no longer in the world, so he's not the light of the world anymore. But what is he? He told his servants that they are the light of the world now. So in Matthew, sure. You didn't have to shut it all the way like that. Matthew chapter 5. 
Thank you anyway. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. So Jesus says that his followers now, he says as long as he's in the world, he was the light. Well, he's not in the world anymore. He's in heaven, okay? So who's the light now? It's carried on by us, or it should be anyway. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. This is what the menorah represents, folks. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And how do we do that? So that they may see your good works. So the light is associated with good works. Okay? The light is associated with good works. Jesus Christ is the light. And what did he do? In the last few verses in John, it said he did so many things that I suppose that the whole, uh, all the books of the world could not contain the things that he did. What he did throughout his life is give the people and did good works towards them. And that's what we must do. We can't call ourselves believers and just lay around and say, hey, I know the scriptures better than you and just sit in a little hole and do anything. We, we all must learn how to give and share our lives with other people. That's what being a true light is all about. And it gives light to all in the house. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. There's many people that put their lights under a basket. And, 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 and that's not what God wants us to do. But on the stand, it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your, your Father who is in heaven. Okay? So that's how we are a light. And then turning to John 3, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the light, again, is synonymous with works. Okay? Darkness represents evil works. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. That not his work should be exposed. So it's all about doing something, despite what false Christianity teaches today. Uh, your Christian life involves doing something, doing good works. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I guess we do have some time, 11 minutes. I can get to John chapter 6 here about the bread from heaven. And I hope you understand what I'm telling you here. I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can. So this picks up in the story about what was going on in the wilderness. Okay, and we have a similar story here involving the one, the prophet like Moses, Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So they weren't following him because they wanted to hear the word of God. They were following him because of what they could get from him. Okay, and verse 3. So Jesus went up to the mountain and they... There he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what? Are they for so many? 
Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And it's interesting because 12 can symbolize the children of Israel. There were 12 tribes, and also he had 12 disciples that followed him. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea rough, became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, please pay attention to this. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but for the food that endures to eternal life. No, wait a minute. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they wanted food. That's all they were concerned about. That's what people seem to be all concerned about today is food, food, food. You know, and then verse 27, please listen to this. And I'm going to repeat it two times. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So he's telling you, don't focus so much on getting food. Okay? Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So don't be your primary purpose in life is to is to make money to get food. That's not your primary purpose. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Good question. Here's the answer. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as we just read today. Uh, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, which is Jesus, and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe now these people have seen him and, they, and don't believe what makes you think that people that have not seen him are going to believe him like they should okay 
there's some people, but the majority don't, unfortunately. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, if you continue to come to him. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on, in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered him, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or attracts him to him. And I will raise him up on the last day. The last day meaning the seventh trump. When the seventh trump sounds. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who was from God. He is from God, so that makes him God because he's from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they're all dead, or they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then Jesus, and the Jews rather, the Jews then disputed among themselves, arguing among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they thought he was talking about cannibalism. He wasn't. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, he's talking symbolically here, obviously. He's not telling anybody to eat someone's flesh, but alone his own. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, because he's the word of God, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What he's figuratively telling you is that you must eat his words. He is the literal word of God. He wants you to eat the Bible. Not literally. Don't put the ketchup or mustard on it and relish and eat it. He's telling you to study it, meditate it, make it a very important part of your life. And most people don't do that, and that's why they have unnecessary, and let me underscore that, unnecessary problems in their lives. You're going to have problems. But a lot of those problems can be avoided by staying close to God and taking God seriously. And that's what he's saying. He wants you to, to pay attention to his words so much that he wants you to figuratively think that you're eating him. Okay? Verse 50, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He was in the synagogue again. Now, He's explaining this to them so they understand what he's talking about in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And many did take offense at what he said, Sheree, a lot of people. So don't be surprised if people take offense at what I say. All right? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no at all. So he's talking spiritually. The words that I have spoken to you are the spirit and life. That's what he wants you to eat, not him, literally. But these are some of you, but, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, and it was 
more than one person who betrayed him, by the way. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The Father has to give someone permission to come to him and understand his words. Verse three, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many, many of his disciples turned back, Cherie, and no longer walked with him. This is not a popularity contest. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? I'd be fortunate enough to have 12 people follow what I say. <laughs> right now it's just four. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom we, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And we know who that was. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So I hope that you've learned something. I tried to simplify this, folks. And may God bless and keep you and protect you. And God willing, I'll still be alive next week to speak to you. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 